0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Matt Shoup, and I am the principal of Praetorian Public Relations. I was named one of the top five political communications professionals in California, and I'm also the chairman of the Contra Costa County Republican Party, and I'll be moderating today's program. We'd like to thank our members, donors, and supporters for making this and all of our other programs possible. We are grateful for their support and hope others will follow their example to support the club during these uncertain times. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Sean Spicer, former White House Press press Secretary and author of the new book, Leading America, President Trump's Commitment to People, Patriotism and Capitalism. Prior to serving at the White House, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, prior to serving at the White House Press Secretary, Sean was the Chief Strategist and Communications Director of the Republican National Committee, since leaving the White House, he has transitioned to the entertainment industry as the host of his political talk show Spicer and Co and as a contestant on ABC's Dancing with the Stars. In Leading America, Sean examines President Trump's impact on our current political atmosphere and how he can continue, continue to rebuild the country if elected for a second term. He draws from his experience in politics, media, academia and entertainment to build a better understanding of how conserv- conservatism can unite America. We'll be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want to ask your questions, too. If you're watching along with us, please put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we'll be getting to them later in the program. Thank you, Sean, for joining us. How are you doing? Thanks, today? Matt. I
1: appreciate being back with you guys. Unfortunately, uh, it's not in person, but...
0: Yeah, so I kind of want to, you know, one of the first things that kind of grabbed me right when I opened your book was your... your you're just your table of contents, you, you you jump right into it. I was expecting, you know, another kind of behind-the-scenes biography of, uh, you know, what it's like to be the press secretary and dancing with the stars, and instead you you kind of went right for the jugular of what's going on in America right now, and in a way that I think a lot of people who are in this, the echelon of society and government that you have been have been unwilling to or afraid to do. And I, I guess my first question is, what what really kind of inspired you and give you the confidence to kind of jump into this really hot button issue going on right now.
1: Uh, yeah, well, first couple things. Thank you. It's good to be back with you guys. Unfortunately, uh, it's, it's not in person, but it's a it's world that we live in today. Um, you're right. The first book, the briefing uh, that I was, I think I spoke to you guys about a couple of years ago, was personal. It was about my story and the behind the scenes part. But it just, it didn't feel right to get into the policy in the same way, because that, that wasn't really the goal of the book. This one, I mean, first, just for those who who haven't read it yet, Chapter 2 is all about Dancing with the Stars, so you can get that. Um, But what the difference is is that instead of just telling you the behind the scenes, I think part of it is to explain, like, what we're up against because, you know, and I think we've seen this in the past 96 hours more than I ever could have imagined when I started the book. We're up against a media, Hollywood, big tech that has an agenda and will do anything and everything – to ensure that we are indoctrinated with the message they want and will block anything from it. And I've never thought that I would see the extreme version that we're seeing now where you have a story in the fourth oldest paper in America that was founded by Alexander Hamilton that uncovers a story that no one denies is true. Like literally no one denies is true. And yet the Washington Post and the New York Times are out there saying don't link to it. Um, You have Twitter censoring it and folks in big Hollywood doing everything they can to avoid talking about it. It blows my mind the degree to which we're up against a, a very hostile um, set of institutions in America. And I mentioned a few of them, but you think about ac- academia, both K through 12 and then college. And people, Matt, have to understand what what we're up against because as conservatives, I think a lot of time you hear this like, oh, you guys are just whining. And when you read the book and you understand the totality of what we're up against in all of these various institutions – I think you have a much better understanding of how big of a problem this is.
0: Yeah, you know, I I think that this is, as you said, it's really been on display lately. I don't know if you saw this, but a few days ago, there was a free speech rally in San Francisco, you know, with a couple dozen conservative protesters outside of Twitter, and they were met by hundreds of counter protesters who assaulted them. And, you know, I think to your point, it's pretty crazy that people peacefully protesting the need for free speech is then attacked you know, by people who claim to be anti-fascist. I, we're, we're, how do you see us recovering from this? Is, is there a way out?
1: Um, you know, it's funny because I think that ironically, the left likes to preach tolerance, tolerance to be tolerant tolerant, and inclusive. Uh, yet those are the two opposite things they are. It's more the right. And I talk about this in the book that I had this, struck up this kind of friendship and uh, conversation, if you will, with Karamo Brown is a very liberal LGBTQ activist that was uh, on the show, Queer Eye, and we kind of had our trailers run next to each other on the show. And yet the media attacked us for being civil to each other. They were talking about how, you know, how odd it was that we were having this conversation and how Karamo, you know, faced a backlash from the left for not calling me out on various things. I think that the way we we make it better is by fighting and winning, meaning that until we expose it, the left... The left wants to talk about civility and conversation and tolerance, but the reality is they don't want it. As by the example you just gave, it's absolutely true. And so we need to expose it. Um, I did a segment on my show yesterday, and I talk about this in the book. In the month of September, late night shows, Colbert, Fallon, and uh, uh, Kimmel had 435 negative jokes about President Trump and 15 against Joe Biden. Even our late night shows aren't funny. They aren't that opportunity to sit back, relax, and laugh anymore um, at the end of the day. They are now literally like political talk shows that should be on a Sunday show that you know are produced by the DNC. I, I think we have to – so my point is, is that I've always said that like we need to have a conversation. We need to be willing to – but unfortunately, the left doesn't want to do that. And the way that we do it then I think is by – Going out there and spreading the word of what we're all about and not trying to appease them, because that's where I think the right gets this wrong, is that we think if we just say we're sorry enough or let's be more inclusive, that somehow that's going to make it better. We saw this the other day with Amy Coney Barrett, where she was responding to a question, and um, she referred to something about sexual preference, and Hawaii's liberal Democratic Senator Mazie Hirono said that suddenly that word sexual preference was now offensive. And by 5 o'clock that day, Webster's Dictionary had changed it to be an offensive word or, or phrase. We that's, that's what we're up against. And I think the problem is so many folks on the right don't realize the totality and the magnitude and the depth and the breadth of the fight that we have. And so we, in order to get it better, we have to be willing to fight because the left understands that they want us to capitulate. And I think those are the two choices.
0: You know, there was one quote in your book that uh, on that issue that kind of stood out to me, and it was – in many ways, this is the problem. The media bemoans the lack of civility, but then creates outrage about people being civil. And I, it, it's been, you, you know, you talked a lot about interacting with media, and I, and I do this as well all the time, like what they cover, but also more importantly, what they don't cover, and that they cause conflict. They talked, you know, you talked about your time on Dancing with the Stars, about how a lot of the media, the way they're reporting, was trying to create conflict between you and the other cast members and whatnot. Why don't you elaborate from your own experiences how the media is actually – well, one, they're driven by conflict. It's, it's a newsworthiness item for them.
1: But I think it's not just conflict, Matt. It's, it's, I, I think you're absolutely right, but it goes beyond that. In the book, I write about this story that Tom Bergeron apparently isn't a big fan of mine. and um, I mentioned in the book that um, I bumped into him for really the first time since he, since he didn't say nice things about me at, at, on Good Morning America. And I was in the middle of a conversation with Aaron Andrews, and he stopped and he made some comment to me. And I just looked at him and I said, "Okay." And the press line later that night, I was asked if I had had a conversation with Tom since Good Morning America. And I said, well, we had a brief conversation and we bumped into each other in the hall. The way the press reported that, and you and I and everyone on this understands what we meant by that. Like I bumped into him in the hall. I had a conversation. It literally said the headline was Spicer and Bergeron have physical Altercation." Right. That's that's not conflict. That's making up a a headline and creating sensationalism. But that's what they do now. It's not just conflict. I get it. If it burns, it it used to be if it bleeds, it leaves And like, I get that. Like There's an old saying that it's not, you know, they never write stories about how many planes land. They write about the one that didn't. I get that. But there's a difference between that and making up news and creating and sensationalizing things for the sake of creating a story. And that's what's different.
0: I think that that, you know, later on the book, you you talked about how the coronavirus really kind of exposed a lot of that. And I think one one thing that really highlighted it for me was this week when uh, yesterday there was a press conference by uh, the administration here in California about reopening theme parks. And they have basically made it impossible for Disneyland to open. But what all the media and a lot of the conversation neglected to talk about is how Disney World has been open you know, since June and they haven't had any incident. The New York times actually did an article recently saying that, you know, Disney world was the apocalypse that never happened. And, you know, talking about, or the admission of stories that are counter to their narrative is a really important thing that is overlooked. And I, I think that, well, what, how do you feel that that strongly is influencing culture?
1: Well, I mean, because I think the example you just gave is there, which, which is that, like, look, you have an, in, and I, I, I'm going off what you're telling me here, but, but I mean, you think about it, you have Disney World, which is, you know, bigger than Disneyland. It's, it's opening. They've taken all these precautions. It's, nothing's happening, and yet they want to create a scenario that doesn't exist, as opposed to maybe saying, let's look at how Disney World has done this well, and how, in fact, it has in cases, which I would think would be the story. And yet the, the angle is, how do we find the negative? How do we go down a rabbit hole? Um, I, I think you're seeing this, you know, in, in a different sl- strip with. This incidents in Jeffrey Tubin where CNN you know puts out the statement that you know Jeffrey Tubin is dealing with a personal problem well this wasn't uh, like he has a um, uh, you know some, some family issue that he's trying to take care of or work through he did something highly highly inappropriate and yet you know there's a section in there that about covering for their own um, they, they will how they cover a story depends on the angle it advances if it's a negative, Anti-conservative, anti-conservative values, or anti-conservative politician or Republican, then they're all for it. If it's if it advances the goals that they want, they'll find a way to either overlook it or twist it in a way that's not harmful.
0: You know, I was actually going to bring that up later, but let's let's jump into that. You know, I found that the Toronto Star had an op ed published, uh, headlined "Horrified by Jeffrey Tubin's Penis, Put It Away for Now." And and the way that the Toronto Star tweeted about it was that the C- CNN and the country needs him and that we can wait to, you know, talk about this. You talked a lot about the advocacy from the newsroom and, you know, they have their own clique and whatnot. I think this, to your point, is a perfect example. I mean, I, I read your book and it's almost prophetic, a lot of what you talked about, you know.
1: You know, it's, it's funny when you say that because, and I'm looking up this section because I think there's a rule in there that, um, and it is, it's rule number one in chapter five, cover your eyes when it's our guys, right? When it's our guy, what? Nothing happened here. It's like Star Wars, Bart, you know, these are not the droids you're looking for. It's amazing how the, the section that I thought was so funny in this is when Megyn Kelly asked a question about blackface. She was fired. She lost her show. When Jimmy Kimmel, Joy Behar, and countless other folks on the left wore blackface, there was nothing to it. Look the other way. So asking about it gets you fired and loses your show. Doing that action, let's overlook it. It's, it's a big difference because as long as you are advancing the, the goals and ideology of the left, all will be forgiven. And I think that that's the point here. Why is Jeffrey Tubin that, that valuable? Because he says how bad Trump is. He doesn't like the president. He doesn't like conservatives. So, therefore, we must save him. We must cover up what he did. I mean, i I, I got to be honest with you. I was talking to a reporter on the way to work this morning uh, who knows him well. And said, I got to be honest with you, I'm disgusted by the fact that, like, I I, I would never want to sit next to him now. Like, I, I couldn't, I can't help. And yet, no one from CNN seems to have a problem with, you know, how its fellow reporters will feel next to a guy that's acting highly inappropriate because, well, because we need him.
0: You know, there was even an article by BuzzFeed that even tried to normalize it and was like, wait, like, is this weird? Like, this is common, isn't it? And it is it's really fascinating that had that been a you know, conservative commentator on Fox News, this would have been, you know, probably bigger than Hunter Biden right now. But because it's one of their own, it's being totally pushed under the rug for the most part by the left. True.
1: But that's, exactly. I mean, the funny part is it's not I mean, look, I'll give you another stupid example. This is this is taking a totally different tack on this. But CNN loves to have a conversation about how Fox News is state television and they do all of this stuff to promote the president. And yet for, for days on end during the pandemic, Chris Cuomo had his brother, the governor, on and sat there and, and clapped and told him how amazing he was and what a great guy he was. And, and yet no one thought that that was inappropriate to have your brother, the governor, who is being heavily criticized for how he's handling particularly seniors in his state. And yet he's getting kudos every night on this network. And no one seems to think that's not state TV.
0: Yeah, it, it's crazy. Um, you know, there was another point that you made in the book that really uh, stuck out to me. I was actually on a having a, a late night call with a, one of my best friends about this last night. We were asking each other, what happened to some of our good friends that used to be conservative and now become liberal? And then, I, you know, in the book, you really hit on this point. And the quote you had is, the few conservative leaning friends and colleagues that I have who at some point in their lives headed out to Hollywood... Quickly transform their thinking and join the left, in large part because it was easier to get along than swim against the tide. And that's really what we identified. It wasn't that they had some big philosophical change. It was they entered a part of their life, whether it be professionally, academically, geographically, where they were. It it was it was taboo to be conservative here in the Bay Area. I have a lot of friends that work in tech that start off as conservative and now are not. Do you think that that's one of the the predominant
1: things? When you it's funny, when I, I was the assistant US trade rep and I traveled a lot out to the Bay Area to deal with intellectual property issues in particular. And they would talk about this is during the Bush years and they would talk about, Well, we need you guys to do this, we need it, and I'd say, Well, how much how much do you bring this up with Diane Feinstein or Nancy Pelosi or like, well, never. Because it's it's like they policy wise acknowledge that Republicans and conservatives have policies that advance their industry or their interests. But it's not cool. You can't you can't do that. You can't say that you're a conservative. You can't tell people you're voting for Trump because it's not the cool thing to do. Um, and I think that, that that is a big problem. We're seeing it, especially younger ages, too, where kids who don't go along to get along are either, you know, getting bad grades and getting, uh, you know, disciplined in an in a academic sense from teachers or are just being persuaded socially not to, to express something.
0: I mean, do you think that that is one of the more predominant reasons why there's been a kind of cultural shift, or or do you think it's one of many factors?
1: I think it's the totality. Look at what's going on with grade school, then look what happens in college, and then look what happens when you graduate. And and it's not until – I mean, it truly is an indoctrination, and it is not until somebody has that aha moment. I, I tell people when you read the book, if you don't have three or four aha moments, something's wrong. Because I think once you realize, you go, now I get it. This is why these guys operate the way they do. I get why teachers, why kids come out as liberal as they do. I get why journalists act the way they do. And it's almost like you have to get, you know, knocked out of the spell.
0: You know, so I I talk about this a lot and people ask me and I want to pass it on to you. So how do we break that cycle and how do we fundamentally change that system?
1: It's a great question. And the answer I'm going to give you is that we have to – we, we as people who, if you believe in this, because I think the the problem is that you have a couple of groups, as we just mentioned, you have the ones that say, it's not worth it. I'm going to just go along and get along. It's not worth it. You have ones that are sheepish and that's not a bad thing. It's for, because I, I know that there's a lot of people um, who I deal with uh, a lot of women, a lot of professionals um, who say, I just, it's not, you know, I can't, I don't want to, I don't want to bring it up. I don't want to say anything. And then, you know, you, you've got to realize that unless the rest of us go out and fight the fight. And what I mean by that is is in a way that facts are on our side. And I lay this out in the book. What liberals are most afraid of is the argument. When you think about college campuses, I ask this all the time. I was out there at Berkeley. I've been to UPenn. And I ask, how many times have you had a conservative on campus? And they'll usually say one, two, at most three times. They're not exposed to the ideas. And the point is, whether you post on Twitter, you go speak to groups, but if we're not out there evangeliz- uh, evangelizing, and that's what it is, there's a, there's a reason that religions do this, um, because they get it, that, that it's that contact that's going to persuade people to join the, their church or, or their particular religion. We need to do that. The idea that socialism has become cool should scare everybody to death. Um, and, and so I, the answer is figure out your way, whether it's posting stuff or making videos and sending them out. But I'll tell you this right now. I started at the beginning of, we launched my show uh, that's on Newsmax every night at 6 o'clock Eastern, 3 o'clock out there, is we started with nothing um, on YouTube. And we now just crossed 10,200 uh, for doing nothing. I mean, literally just posting clips. Um, and, and, and so I didn't do anything. I would tweet out a segment. Or, and then I started talking to people. Um, so I had this conversation with the governor of Puerto Rico last week. And she said to me, she's like, we're talking about the plebiscite that's happening down there and sort of some of their politics. She endorsed Donald Trump and da-da-da-da. And um, she said, you know, I just don't think anyone knows. And I said, can we do a quick video, you and I? And she was like, uh, okay. So I literally took my iPhone. I had her aid hold it. And we talked for four minutes. I posted it on YouTube and got 1.5, you know, a, a one point five, 1,500 views. Okay. That's not changing the world. But it's it's a st- I mean, because she was talking about it. no one understands this about the Puerto Rican uh, political system. And this is how we vote. And this is what the plebiscite means. It doesn't mean I said, well, what are you doing to get the word out? And and so I think that each of us can start to do that. Um, and we all have the tools now to do it. So if an email list or a quick little YouTube video. But suddenly, you know, uh, you, you think about these influencers that are doing stuff on Instagram and YouTube and TikTok. Like these are kids. They don't have a base. They don't have advertising. They they have compelling stuff and they put it out there. There's no reason all of us can't be doing that. And then we build our little army of education um, to to let people understand what's at stake. Because more often than not, what you find is that people say, God, I never heard that before. I never had anyone explain that to me. My colleague on the show, Lindsay Keith, um, she worked at Google and they, we always joke, um, I mean, it was like she was like a zoo animal. They'd come by and pet her, be like, you're the conservative, right? And they would want to ask, they'd be like, can I ask you a question? Why would, what, what is the conservative? And more often than not, they'd say, gosh, that's how I think. And, you know, it was almost like, really, do you know that if you actually stop for a second, you'd realize that you are a conservative. You just don't want to call yourself one. And so I think we we need to engage more and be willing to do that because the less fear is, is,
0: that is our message. I, I 100% agree, actually. I'm not originally from the Bay Area. I'm from Southern California. But my first job when I moved here is I was the executive director of the San Francisco Republican Party. And I just put myself out there and had a great time with it. Uh, but, you know, but at the same time, when Ben Shapiro comes to Berkeley, there's, you know, protests and riots. And it's crazy. But you know,
1: Matt, it's funny you say that. OK, so I went to speak at Berkeley. I talk about this in the book. And I, I will say that that was probably in the top five most nervous uh, experiences of my life. Because i had seen Ben, um, I'd seen, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, what's going to get burned down? Who's going to shoot something? And so I walked on stage and, I, I, and I, was, I sort of said, hey, can I, before we get going, can I make a deal with you? I said, here's the deal. And remember, I'm from the East Coast, so it's easy because I was a few hours, like, you know, it was seven o'clock there or whatever. So it's like, you know, I, 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 I was in a much better place uh, going to bed wise. And I said, here's the deal. If you guys treat each other respectfully and we allow everybody to ask a question, I will stay here till every single question is answered. I will answer anything. You can ask anything you want. And I will stay here until everybody has their question answered. As long as you agree that we'll let everybody talk. At the end of that talk, I got a standing ovation. And I think what it was, was that people want to have their voice heard. They want to be respected and that, you know, like I said, my deal was I'm not running from you. I'll stay here. Um, I don't know how much overtime the cops got. But, um, you know, it, 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 I think part of this is that if we engage, we'll be surprised at, you know, look, I've been yelled at. I've been heckled. I've been protested. I get it. But the funny thing is I haven't gone to a single college in my last, in the last two and a half years that hasn't had an overflow capacity crowd. There is a yearning on college campuses to hear conservative speakers. They are so rare. And so if we're willing to go out there and do that and engage and have those dialogues, I mean, we start debating, hey, why don't we have a debate with the, you know, the contra costa Republicans and the Democrats and just say, hey, guys, why don't we go down the issues? We're respectful because the, I, I think that people want to hear that and they go, wow, I never really realized that, you know, that makes me think I'm more Republican the way they explained it. If we engage, we win absolutely
0: you know and, and uh, as a segue on that point another another quote from your book that really resonated for me was have you ever noticed that the left tends to accuse the right of the very crimes they themselves are the most guilty of committing and you know i think like the me too movement a lot of this other stuff you know or even the blm for that matter is really exposed that it was in, it was in droves it was democrats and people in hollywood and people in the media you know that were on the left side were the ones that ended up getting burned by a lot of these movements and it was not overwhelmingly, or even at all, a lot of the people on the right. So why, what do you think that dynamic is and how prevalent is it?
1: It's massively prevalent. Think of Hollywood. How much do they, they love to talk about gun control? Do you know how many, I mean, how does a seven or eight or nine year old kid, and I've got two nine year olds, how do they learn about guns? It's not because, I mean, I've taken my son's shooting, so, but that's more recently. But But part of it is because Hollywood and video games introduce them to them. These are the guys who glamorize violence. They're the ones who, who talk about glamorizing and, and uh, a lot of you know improper stuff when it comes to women and drug abuse and, and sexuality. And yet then they preach to everybody about they need to have inclusion and treat women with respect. Go look at some of these movies and tell me how much respect they're paying women. Um, or how they're glamorizing certain aspects of their beauty and then say, I can't believe that, that this is happening. They're the cause of it. I mean, you, and, and, and think about Harvey Weinstein. How many people overlooked his behavior? How many people in the media overlooked, you know, Matt Lauer's behavior? And they sit there and go, oh, I can't believe it.
0: Or even you enabled it for one, that matter.
1: They enabled it. And then they're going to tell us about conservative and our values? Are you kidding me? I, I just, I, I find it so fascinating. The people who create it and magnify it, you know, they, they are literally the arsonist who gets, who then blames the firefighter.
0: So another, another section you went into, let's go talk about the media for a little bit, because you and I have worked a lot with them. So you talk about one part is the, all the conflicts of interest, which is kind of similar. They, they like to attack conservatives for having conflicts of interest, but the amount of entanglements that the reporters have, and even on the tech side, you know, if you look at a lot of the uh, communications professionals in the tech industry here at Twitter and Facebook, they're all former staffers of Pelosi and Feinstein and D C and whatnot. Why is that never really put out to the front? Why is there not a requirement that they have to disclose their conflicts? And what what type of dynamic has that had on public discourse, you think?
1: Well, it's kind of horrible because, I mean, think about this. the One of the morning show hosts' husband uh, ran Al Gore's campaign. Another one was, you know, a, an operative for the Clintons. Um, another one worked for Chelsea Clinton's mother-in-law. Um, another one uh, was chief of staff in the Obama administration for a foreign policy uh, agency. I mean, like, and, and yet none of them disclosing them. why because they're all on it together. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. It's not like it's a mix. They all come from one place, and so they all kind of have a. It's a it's sort of a compact, you know. Don't tell on me, and I won't tell on you. There are some of these folks, and, and, and like you said, if if they there's both their backgrounds and then their their sort of their spouses. I mean, there is a prominent host whose wife raises money for Democrats that are on that individual's show all the time and are never disclosed. And you think to yourself, don't you think there's a little bit of a conflict that you're quizzing your client of your your wife's on on your show and not disclosing the fact that, you know, you guys make money off of this individual? Um, I I think there's a lot. But part of it is because they're all they're all in it together. They all share the same bond and they don't want to expose it.
0: So let's, on that note, let's jump into Hunter Biden from a media perspective. One, as a PR professional and a crisis communications professional, how do you assess the Biden's campaign response or lack thereof to that? And then secondly, how do you feel about the media or the lack of media's interest in that story?
1: So, like, you, you, you get this. Uh, that If a client comes to you and says, hey, there's an impending thing that's going to come out, the thing that you tell every client is, let's get ahead of this. Let's get it all out. Let's get it over with, because that's the easiest thing to do, right? So let's figure out what the facts are and get it over with. That's, like, literally PR 101. Um, the idea and, – and I thought, oh, my God, like, here you go. You've got a picture of him. You've got text of him. You've got his emails. And as of yesterday, you have the receipt with his handwriting, his signature on it, saying, here, I'm dropping this off. That in, – in a normal world, that would have – you know, that's it. Game, set, match. Um, and yet you have a press that won't even ask them – the question that they asked Joe Biden yesterday, this is not a joke. It's on my Twitter feed. When they had an opportunity to finally ask Joe Biden a question yesterday, they asked him this. What flavor ice cream did you get, Mr. Vice President? That's it. You know, and if you know you can get away with that, then you're going to have a much different strategy than if you knew that you were going to get asked tough questions.
0: I, I mean, you know, he he's putting a, a lid on it early in the morning every day or all the way through the debate. Do you he can get he,
1: away with it.
0: I was going to say, are, are you ever envious that while your time in the White House or you know at the RNC, you could just you know tell the media you're not going to give any comment and they'd be completely content with it? I mean, well, how about yeah.
1: this? The other day, Nancy Pelosi accused Wolf Blitzer of being a tool of the Republicans, and I thought to myself, six years at the RNC and almost a year at the White House, I didn't know that Wolf Blitzer was on my team ever. Um, I, yeah, I, I look at this and go, are you kidding me? I mean, if if you know Johnny Witherspoon at Thomas Jefferson Middle School said something wrong in the seventh grade and his dad's a Republican office holder. I heard about it at the RNC. Now these people have somebody literally having done extremely nefarious things and no one will ask a question. They're questioning sources. Do they ask about those sources, about the Steele dossier? Do they ask about those sources when the president's taxes were illegally leaked? Nope.
0: What, what do you think about now they're trying to twist it as this is another Russian you know, influence plot? And but again the So you think here's what anything. I think is interesting
1: about that the media dr- jumped to a conclusion without any like the actual director of National Intelligence John Radcliffe said that's not true so I don't understand how the New York Times or the Washington Post have such better sources than the Director of National Intelligence but you know they the, the lengths to which they are going to cover up for them is is I think embarrassing and I think that if you were a retired journalist in your 70s or 80s now looking at the profession you've got to be disgusted.
0: You know there's an interesting thing going on at the the Sacramento Bee right now where they have the the owner of the newspaper is really trying to press on them the need for getting clicks for their articles and and they're being evaluated by how many clicks their articles drive. Some of the journalists are pushing back on that dynamic and saying that it shouldn't be about clicks. You know as you know a lot of, I mean the term clickbait has been around for a while. How much of the impact do you think that that has had on journalism and where I mean, journalism has evolved so much. But like, what do you think the impact of that has been?
1: It's been tremendous. I, I, I know I've talked to folks at Politico and they'll say, oh, hey, by the way, that story was number one. It got da." da, da, da. They're, they're 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 aware of it and they're full of it. The idea that a journalist doesn't care about how many clicks or shares that their story got. That's crazy. Everyone. I mean, that's it's like ratings. I, my show, I get ratings every Tuesday morning. And you can bet that when that email comes and I open it, that's the first thing I look at is how did we do the last week? Um, Now, then again, just to be clear, I'm not a journalist, but to think that if you're one of these guys, I know from talking to them and I'll say something about the story and they go, yeah, you know how much that thing drove so much traffic or got this many click throughs. They they cry me a river. They're full of it. They, of course, they know and they care. They don't, the only reason they don't like it is because they don't want to be judged on that if their story doesn't do well. But the reality is that when it does well, they'll tell everyone in the world how well it did.
0: You know, I've gotten into a lot of local newsrooms throughout California, and a lot of them will have TVs with, like, scoreboards, actually, of all the different reporters and how much social engagement they're getting. Uh, You know, and I had one political reporter that told me that he was brought out of culture to write about politics, and he would write about, like, the biggest burrito in town, and it would get 100,000 shares. But then he would go write about a, you know, state legislative race, and it would get, like, 100 clicks and how disappointed he was. And I think a lot of people don't really understand that that's a major dynamic going on in the media right now.
1: Yeah, so. but they they I mean, look, it's like any industry, but they want to pretend that it's not true, but they know it is. And they and when it's going well, if that same reporter had written something interesting about the state legislative race and it had gotten 100,000 clicks, he'd be screaming from the rooftops on you. You're never going to guess how well I did because it's not to them about the story. It's about the clicks. It's about the views. Um, and it's about, you know, their egos.
0: Yeah, I'm going to switch over to some of the audience questions. I got my my fill there. Um, What is your opinion on both parties' outreach campaigns to young voters, and where can they improve?
1: It's a really great question. Actually, we're going to be talking about it on my show today. We've got um, Michael Knowles, who's out in your neck of the woods out there. He'll be soon moving to Nashville with the the rest of the Daily Wire crew, and then uh, a young guy by the name of Madison Cawthorn. He's a 25-year-old Republican uh, running to take over Mark Meadows' former seat in North Carolina uh, for the House of Representatives. I'm fascinated by it because I look at politics as a very data-driven thing, right? Which is you you, you look at what works and you do what works and then you abandon what doesn't. And that's it. It's very simple. Um, young people tend not to vote. Seniors do. So seniors get the bulk of the attention. This election, I think, has the opportunity to be different. And if you talk to folks on the right, they'll tell you that young folks are engaging in ways that they haven't on the right. I'm not so sure I buy that. Um, the problem is, is that, you know, to answer the question – young people a lot of times don't see the connection between their lives and politics and policies in the vote. So they'll say like, why do I care about, you know, these regulations or, uh, you know, whatever, and, or the courts. Um, and that's just a bit of being young. I think that they, they should be more engaged. Um, I think that we should find ways of engaging with them more and, and meet them where they're at. Um, and what I mean by that is that where we need to be on college campuses and in um, and in uh, high school classrooms, I give Charlie Kirk a lot of credit. I write about him in the book, that one of the ways that we have overcoming that is an organization like Turning Point USA that Charlie has founded, where they're going out and meeting these kids on college campuses. And if you watch Charlie's video, he's so logical. He'll say, you're racist. And he'll go, okay, why? Give me two policies. And they'll be like, well, because, because you support Donald Trump. Okay, well, what did he do? And he challenges folks where they're at. I think we need to do more of that than anything else is is engaging because mar- politics at its core is marketing. And the way I put it to people is if you've got the best and most amazing product in the world and you put it on the highest shelf and push it way back, no one will find it. And the same thing with politics where people always say to me about the Latino community and the black community, you know, they should be Republican, you know. They're church going, they're entrepreneurial, uh, You know, they, they're very family oriented in Albay, and we never talk to them. So that's the problem. We need to engage in a lot of these areas where we haven't um, so much in the past, and it will pay dividends. Look, if you look at President Trump, uh, I, I had a saying at the RNC, we, we presidentially, we usually get about 8 to 10%. Um, I think that President Trump has a real shot at getting about 20% of the black vote. So as I like to say, we just need to suck less.
0: I agree. (laughs) We
1: suck, and we got to be honest about it. We just need to suck less because sucking less is actually really good for us. So going from an F minus to an F, if you're trying to get into Harvard, is not going to get you anywhere. But it it, it does show improvement, and I think that's where we as a party need to go is to understand that that incremental change is is what we need to be focused on.
0: So I, I actually am going to go off the audience questions to talk a little inside baseball that is actually directly related to this, and you're uniquely positioned to talk about it. So after Romney's loss in 2012, the RNC produced the Growth and Opportunity Report, where it did a pretty honest dissection of a lot of the failings that they had, and there was a lot of progress made on doing a lot of the outreach that you just described. I know that a lot of the RNC insiders and, and consulting class in the party was kind of angry at Trump, having essentially blown up a lot of that, you know, outreach. But yet at the same time, as you just pointed out, Trump is generating more support in the Latino community, the African American community, the LGBT community than we had gotten before. So what do you think the dynamic there is in that? And and how do you? Yeah, I'm just going to let that.
1: Um, So here's the interesting thing is, number one, I think a lot of people misinterpret The goal of the Growth and Opportunity Project, which was to basically lay out mechanically and otherwise what we needed to do. We did do a lot of the stuff on technology and other infrastructure changes, mechanically speaking, that the party did a really good job of of pushing people to do. Where everyone gets hung up is the outreach part of it. So let me address that. The point that was made in that was that we we need to get back to figuring out how do we grow enough of the vote to win presidentially. And the bottom line is that Trump did it in a different way. So, you know, in the, the, the goal was how do we engage with these folks in a way of meeting with their eye? We weren't very specific with with how to do it, just saying, hey, look, we need to go places and do things. You know, I, I think where people misread this is that, I mean, if you look at Trump, he's engaging in the black community in ways it's never been before. He passed the First Step Act and got it signed. Right. That's not we just said you have to engage. He went well above that with the black community. He's increased funding to HBCUs. He's uh, done a lot of empowerment zones and other things that have been particularly helpful to the black community. So he's actually done very well there on the Hispanic community. I think there's obviously room to grow. But if you look at his share of the vote, I think he's going to exceed um, what he got last time and, and definitely what Romney got.
0: You know, one thing I like to point out is that the the Republicans, the RNC especially, were, were wise enough and humble enough to do that kind of introspection and, and figure out how to improve. I don't feel like the Democrats have really done that you know because well, they can't to, they, go for it I mean, let's hear it
1: no no but, but the reason is because they can't because the democrats have have stitched together this coalition of of victimhood where it's it's will will you know they don't our goal is to lift everyone up and to say you if we all succeed you succeed how do we get you on a level playing field think about what's happening we're doing a segment on the show today about how in, in San Diego school district they're getting rid of, of certain aspects of grades right their goal is not to say, how do we lift people up? How do we increase, um, how do we empower people in the black community to get businesses, to have homeownerships, to increase wealth? It's okay, well, we're going to get rid of something because we don't want other people to have it so that it, it's level. They push people down instead of bring people up. And the Democrats can't look past that because if they really wanted to be honest with each other, that, that, the, the way that they stitch together the, their coalitions doesn't have that common theme. We do.
0: So last question, really, um, what do you wish the readers of your book walk away with that they didn't know before? And like, you know, what, what's, your, what's your elevator pitch on it?
1: So the, the elevator pitch is this. I think that we often look at these individual things that happen in society and say, oh, woe is me. When you look at them in, in totality, what we face in all the major institutions, whether it's academia, Hollywood, uh, government, big tech, big media, and understand how they are all on the same team fighting against us and understand the totality of what that looks like, you will get why we need to do what we need to do. Because I think so often you see one piece of the puzzle and you go, oh, that's interesting. And it's until you put that puzzle together, you finally recognize how big of a problem this is and what's really at stake. Because I, I, I literally open the book by saying every four years, every politician tells you this is the most important election. This truly is. And it is because as a conservative and as a Republican, if you can't look at the Trump agenda and recognize what he's been able to accomplish, then I think you've been living under a rock. And I think if this was Joe Biden of 10 years ago, I'd be having a different conversation with you. But the problem is, is that a Harris Biden administration is going to be run agenda wise by the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, J- and Bernie Sanders. And the reality is this. If Joe Biden is elected, there is no political scenario in which I see him not taking a Democratic Senate. If he takes a Democratic Senate, he has a Democratic House. If he has that together, he has two years of what, running the government and, and jamming liberal policies through in a way that has never been done before. And unfortunately, you cannot unwind that. That's the problem.
0: You know, actually, I, we have two more minutes. And I, one thing I wanted to hit on that I didn't, but you kind of hit on it, was, uh, you know, CDA 230 and talking about the big tech. We're, I mean, the Republicans haven't done anything about a lot of the tech censorship. And you did talk about getting out there and posting more on TikTok. And when, how do you think that that plays out or what do you think the solution
1: there is? It's funny you ask. I've got Brendan Carr. He's one of the commissioners on the Federal, um, Com- Federal Communications Commission on the show today. We're going to ask him about that because there's two things. One is Section 230 of the Federal Decency Act gives the, these platforms the ability to have basically immunity from, from people going after them. And I'm torn on this because I think it should be gotten rid of. I think they should be treated like a publisher. There's a lot of people who say, you know, conservatives better be wary what they ask for. Uh, and I'm cognizant of that because what happens when it goes away. But I think that the problem is that they've, these, these these platforms, Twitter and Facebook in particular, um, have impunity right now. They can go out there, they do it all, and there's no recourse. I think we need to be able to, to have the ability to sue them the same way we would a newspaper. Um, And and they are tilting the scales, they are interfering with elections, and we need to understand that and act.
0: All right. Uh, Our thanks to former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer, author of the book Leading America, President Trump's Commitment to the People, Patriotism, and Capitalism, for joining us today. We'd also like to thank our audience for watching and participating live. If you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming... Please visit commonwealthclub.org online. I'm Matt Shoup. Stay safe, everyone. and Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate.